Welcome to yet another episode of the Reenactors Corner. In this episode, we're going to talk about our living quarters, as we'll be discussing the why and how of World War II German tents. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. This is Chris here again with Lassa. How are you doing today, Lassa? I'm actually doing great. Uh, we've had some rain and it's actually cold outside, so I'm not dying from the heat stroke. Cool. I'm doing pretty good too. What about you? The weather here is, uh, is kind of rough, but uh, you know, I am, uh, I'm going to survive. Well, nothing is better than surviving. <sighs> I guess. Um, so today on the podcast, <laughs> we are going to talk about tents, which is a really kind of uh, perennial subject of discussion in reenactment because we sleep in tents at our field events all the time, um, which I assume, Lassa, right, that that holds true mostly for uh, for Europe as well as the United States. That's probably kind of a constant in reenacting is uh, sleeping in tents. Absolutely. And I think the uh, the topic we're going to uh, explore here is whether or not it's actually realistic to sleep in tents. And that may seem weird because German soldiers were issued the Zeltbahn, like the um, the little tent quarter, right? So why? what's there to discuss? Sure. I mean, I remember looking back to when I started reenacting, I was kind of under the impression that... Uh, Germans slept on cots in uh, big squad tents, and I wondered what the original cots looked like. You know, I was trying to do research on that, and I saw pictures of what I assumed were the squad tents. Um, but of course, over time, I came to realize that my how I thought things were was not really how they were, right? Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I guess, uh, you know, let's maybe talk about the basic thing which you brought up, which is the Zeltbahn, which was the individual poncho or shelter quarter that was issued to every German soldier. This is this triangular piece of fabric with buttons all around the edges so that you can button them together and make tents of different configurations. Um, you know, is there... I guess, you know, what what is the correct way to use that in reenacting? Well, it's it's such a broad question. Like, um, I feel the correctest way to use it would be either as camouflage or, uh, you know, as a poncho on yourself or camouflage, or um, as a as a rain uh, piece of rain gear. Yeah, that's uh, probably the most common way that these things were used in the reality of world war ii i guess you know maybe we should kind of look at the bigger picture right which is what is it that reenactment is really trying to represent um because i guess depending on what reenactment is trying to represent that would maybe dictate how how tented should be used 
Um, obviously, within Germany, when soldiers were in training or when they were in garrison, generally speaking, they were in buildings. They were in German army buildings that were there for that purpose. And also, even in the occupied countries, soldiers in garrison usually were in a barracks or they could be quartered in uh, civilian homes or whatever. And then in the field, you know, soldiers, they might they might have the opportunity to sleep in barns or homes or they might have to sleep out in the open. And that sleeping out in the open in the field thing is, I think, mostly what reenactment is is replicating in settings where we don't have buildings or whatever. I think that's like the uh, biggest issue is that um, the lack to either commandeer buildings or to like go into buildings, especially that are um, defarmed. Totally. So we don't have access to something that like we don't have access to a World War II world. We don't have access to a World War II city or town. We don't have an access to a World War II village, generally speaking. So we kind of have to make do with um, with what we have. And what we have, for the most part, I think is going to be tents, right? Yeah, and I think like that's the main reason that everybody sleeps in tents, uh, I feel, is that uh, we just don't have any, any other options. Uh, I know my unit and also uh, other units have been utilizing uh, old barns and stuff, either like here in Norway or in France or something, and that always looks uh, very realistic. I also remember in Belgium we were uh, granted access to a big old chateau, uh, but we were not allowed to sleep inside, so we still uh, uh, pitched our tents on the outside. That sounds really fun. Yeah, I feel like access to buildings make it more uh, authentic. As you say, that's how they slept usually. But um, Sure, I totally just that agree. It, yeah, it's like artillery and air support and stuff. It's just difficult to get in, a, in the reenactment hobby. We're basically lucky to be able to use whatever property we can, you know. And a lot of times that property is just going to be a forest or a field or whatever. And in that situation, exactly. you know, tents tents are the way to go. So what what my reenactment unit does is we use we use tents made out of the Zeltbahn shelter quarters. Um, and there's a lot of kind of confusion uh, about that. I think you know there's a lot of misinformation or lore speculation that has gone on in reenacting that these tents like okay. So for people who don't know. You've got this triangular piece of fabric with buttons all the way around. And you can button this thing together in almost infinite configurations. You can button four of them together to make a little pyramid tent. You can button eight of them together to make it a larger tent. Or you can button 16 of them together or even more numbers. You could make gigantic tents with these things if you had enough shelter quarters and enough poles and tent pegs to do it. Um, There's like a sort of a legend that I've heard a lot of times in reenacting that the small pyramidal four-man tent, which is kind of the smallest enclosed tent that you can make with these things, that it was meant for three people to sleep in. And that the idea was that uh, you'd have four people combining their tent equipment to make one tent, and three of the people would be sleeping in there at any time, and the fourth person would be standing guard duty. 
Um, but that's not that's not how it really was. Um, I just want to read this little excerpt uh, that some people might be familiar with. Uh, it's from Leon de Grel from his uh, his book Campaign in Russia, which was his story about the uh, the Eastern Front in World War II. He says. We had barely the time to set up our minuscule tents on the crest before the first great tempest of autumn broke loose. Our tents were made of little triangular canvases slit in the middle, which served individual troops as ponchos. To erect a tent, one had to combine four of these canvases, staking them over an area of about two by two meters. But four canvases meant four men, so we had to sleep four in a tent in a tiny space, as well as shelter a full kit there. To complicate matters further, the tent had to be taken down during the day so that everyone could have his poncho back to cover himself. We had neither straw nor dry leaves to stretch out on, nothing except the drenched soil. The storm howled the whole night. We were right at the summit of the mountain. The torrents of rain, hail, and snow could carry off our habitations at any instant. The water streamed in, penetrating holes punctured at a dozen places in canvases that had seen a year and a half of service, drenching our faces. Men cried out against the tempest. Their tent shelters bowled over, soaked to the skin. They struggled and swore. So that's DeGrell's account of a, of a rough night, you know, a, a, a situation that I think a lot of reenactors could relate to on a smaller scale, you know, trying to sleep in, in kind of crappy wartime tents uh, in, a, in a rainstorm <laughs> is going to give you that yeah. kind of an experience a lot of the time. But I think the important thing there is that he's saying, yeah, we slept four people in these little tents. And um, and I really think that was kind of the standard you had for, for soldiers in the field. You know, four men, four shelter quarters, and, and that's a tent. Um, you know, I think it's important to remember that when Leon de Grel is talking about sheltering a whole kit in there, He's talking about stuff that a soldier carries on his back. And for a lot of reenactors, the full kit that they bring to the event is likely going to be more than what a soldier can carry on his back, right? They have more gear in general, I think, than the wartime field soldiers usually carried. Um, but you can do it. I've, Absolutely. You know, I've done it. You can sleep four people in there with the gear that you carry on your back. And that's that's probably how it was. Now, having said that, I'm not going to lie and say that every single time in my life that I've slept in a in a tent made out of four self-bond shelter quarters, there were three other people in there. Um, you know, is there a historical justification for having a tent that's made out of more shelter quarters than you have people sleeping in there? What do you think, Les? Well, the thing, um, something that my unit did before when we had a lot of public displays was that... Um, we tried to have as many uh, tent shelters as we could, and we would basically uh, erect enough tents to sleep in, usually three in each tent, just to have room for, like, kit and stuff during the event, and people would still carry a spare Zelpan on their kit. Um, over time, we stopped doing as many public events, and we started focusing more on authenticity, so we got rid of that idea. And, um, yeah, no, we... Um, we have often slept for in a four-man zelpon, and it's it's intimate. It's um, it's actually necessary during the winter because it's cold as hell. But um, 
during the summer it can get warm but you know i i i it works and i think the way the wehrmacht or the german military as a whole kind of um looked at this was that the zelpans used as a small four-man pyramid tent would be like the a um what you call it an emergency solution if they couldn't find any other shelters uh during uh during the day now i think we we might have discussed in the past on the podcast the concept that at some level the german military might have had extra equipment to make available for soldiers in certain settings like like the reality of tents i think is is not only that soldiers in every situation were setting the tent up in the evening and then taking it down during the day you know i think there were in the field some almost semi permanent setups where soldiers were sleeping in these tents night after night and and like not taking them down during the day and i think there are maybe a lot of different situations in which something like that might have happened for example soldiers who were assigned to ground duty at a field airfield uh, before they had an opportunity to build permanent structures there or uh, soldiers who were in static positions again before they had an opportunity to build uh, more permanent accommodations for these people we see those sometimes in world war ii photos we see uh tent camps that basically are they're very obviously you know established tent camps there may be some kind of infrastructure there even like uh rifle racks or racks for gear or the tents are are dug in you know there's a wooden structure there um you know do you think that maybe in some of those situations there might have been other shelter quarters that were available so that um Maybe the tents could be a little bit more spacious. I mean, is this is is this just speculation, or is there some historical, you know, justification for that kind of thing, Lassen? I think there's historical justification for that because I have read that units were supposed to have a certain number of uh, zelpans uh, available uh, to be used by the soldiers when needed, for example, in these semi-permanent setups uh, you're talking about. Um, I also read that during very wet days and stuff, um, the unit would issue out these spare zelpons, uh two extra pieces per every four tent, or every four, like the small four-man pyramid tent, because those could be buttoned together and used as a floor inside. Uh, which I have tested, and it actually works having like a zelp on floor as well. Um, but uh, I think just as as the war progressed, there just wasn't enough uh, zelpons to um, to go around to everybody, so they had to, uh, um, you know, stop using as much of it. So they uh, so everybody could could get issued one. Sure, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I I did an interview. Um, a few years back with a, a German soldier who had been in the infantry Lehrregiment at Anzio. And I asked him, you know, when you were in the, in the fighting in Anzio, did you have a blanket? He said, oh, yeah, every, uh, every soldier had a blanket. It was uh, made out of canvas and it was triangular and it had buttons on it, you know, and he was talking about the Zeltbahn. And for him, 
in when he was in in the field, they were basically sleeping in uh, holes, and it was wet in those holes. And he, the soldiers were wrapping themselves in their shelter quarters, um, basically, you know, as as a blanket uh, to keep dry. And if it were, they didn't have tents. Obviously, they were they were close to the enemy, and and setting up a tent was not going to be possible. So for him, the zelpan was was a blanket, you know. And I think that's probably how it was for a lot of soldiers in the foremost lines, you know, particularly, but but not exclusively, right? Like I think a lot of soldiers, infantry soldiers who were on the march, um, they were probably at at some point at night it was just time to stop and lay down on the ground and wrap yourself in what you've got and go to sleep um and that's something that can be replicated in reenactment to an extent but when the weather is bad uh it can be really bad is that something you guys have ever done lasso like just wrap yourself in the in the top and go to sleep yeah uh, during some um some tacticals we have, or even tacticals without an enemy, if that's called a tactical, but like private events, uh, we uh, usually don't set up a tent if it's not uh, winter. Um, but even in the summer, the nights can be cold. And what happens is that, uh, what I've noticed is that if we're like 10 guys out in the woods and we're spread out to to like defend a front line or something, uh, what happens is that... Uh, like six of us will sleep just on the ground wrapped up in the one blanket we got and the zelpan and the remaining four have popped up a zelpan and they sleep uh sleep in that sure so i think it's quite on the individual level as well yeah no i think it definitely can be um you know i've had a, a lot of mixed experiences just kind of sleeping out in the open uh I mean, first of all, look, soldiers in World War II didn't have to, like, go to their office job on Monday, you know. So these were people who were doing what they had to do kind of because they had no choice. And the bare necessities for their lives, like food and stuff, that was just, that was brought to them each day. You know, they didn't have to worry about that. The Army provided for them in in almost all situations what they needed on a day-to-day basis. Our lives are different we are not we are not living that lifestyle we are living modern 21st century lives where the world war ii part of it is like two days on a on a weekend once a month or whatever and so um we don't have the ability to kind of acclimate to the weather to temperatures right the way that if you're sleeping in a tent every single day you know as the weather gets colder you you kind of as a animal right can acclimate to that on some level whereas if you're used to heated to sleeping in a heated room every single night and now you have to sleep in a space that's not even super cold right that's maybe significantly above freezing like springtime temperatures that can that can feel absolutely freezing if you're used to sleeping in a in a you know out to us a room temperature heated room um, yeah, totally. You know, if if a if a German soldier was exhausted, he had no choice but to keep on marching. He had no choice but to keep on going. And I'm sure these people, like uh, Guy Sayer in his in his uh, memoir, Forgotten Soldier, says that 
the word exhaustion had like a different meaning during the war, that he experienced depths of exhaustion that in modern civilian life are simply impossible, you know, and I'm certain that that's true. But we can't, I can't expect somebody in my group to go two nights without any sleep at all and then drive home, you know, then, and maybe it's a six hour drive and they, they haven't slept in three days. You know, that's, that's, uh, it's just dangerous. It's, uh, it's not going to work. Um, so I, you know, I guess the point of all of this long winded diatribe is basically that on some level, some kind of authenticity compromise becomes unavoidable in terms of sleeping, in terms of tents, because we, we're not really living that life. You know, we're trying to replicate a tiny slice of an experience that's kind of jammed within, um, two work weeks. And that, that means that it's going to be a little different than how it was in World War II. Um, so you know, I guess how every group and every reenactor interprets that is going to be up to them and what their comfort level is. And I certainly would, I ask my members of my group to be able to push their comfort level as far as they can. And I think that every reenactor should try to get outside of their comfort zone to the extent that they can. But, um, look, if it's, uh, if it's going to be raining at night, um, I definitely am prioritizing some kind of shelter. You know, do you look at it that way, Lassa? Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. It um, is it is an authenticity compromise, just like we can't have, um, you know, realistic towns to fight in, uh, air support, artillery, and an army that supports us. Yeah, exactly. We we don't have that level of support that they had, you know, so we have to kind of make, we have to kind of create a World War II world where no World War II world exists. And, uh, you know, for me, tents are definitely a part of that world. In my unit, we usually use the uh, eight-man configuration for the tent. So it's eight shelter quarters that are buttoned together to make a more spacious tent. And sometimes we might have eight people in there and other times maybe we only have, you know, five people in there. Um, but it's, it's basically, it's set up, uh, for the entire event generally. And that's kind of our base. That's our home for the weekend. It's where we go back to at night. It's where we store all of our stuff. And that's a system that works really well for us. And I think it's also a system that is, uh, I think it's realistic, you know, not, maybe not five people sleeping in an eight man tent may not be, you know, the most realistic representation of the most average common daily experience for a field soldier. But I certainly think it's something that falls into the range of what's plausible into what could have happened. And you know, I think it's, uh, we're sleeping on the ground. We're using straw and wool blankets as bedding. And I think it's, I think it's a reasonable representation of a World War II type experience. Um, what are, what do you guys do about tents at your, uh, events? Well, when we do set up tents, usually in the winter, as said, we do usually put up uh, at least an eight man uh, tent, if not a 10 man tent. Um, and uh, we also use an oven in it 
And this is because it's better to hit up uh, one eight-man tent than two four-man tents. There's, uh, there's lots of documentation of use of you know, ovens and tents. Um, if you look at the German manual Taschenbuch für den Winterkrieg, they say in there, you know, even a field expedient or a stopgap heater is better than no heater at all in accommodations. Um, and there certainly are abundant wartime photographs that show stovepipes coming out of tents made out of shelter quarters. And so it was something that, that happened and something that was like doctrinally, you know, approved or even called for in, in low temperature situations. Um, Absolutely. Well, what about, what about big tents? You know, there are reproductions that you can buy of World War II German quote-unquote squad tents. These things are generally made out of tan or yellow canvas. Um, there are staff tents. Uh, do you guys use any of those, Lasa, the big tents? We have never used one. Um I think in the early days we did use one for uh, an older guy that joined us. God, that was in the early days. But uh, no, we don't use one and we have n- not uh, wanted to get one either. So for you guys, the Zaltzbahn tent is like enough. Yeah, because, um, I mean, we're uh, lucky enough to have access to s- some areas with buildings um, and these Zeltbahns are so universal that I th- we would never need anything else. And let's say that we would need like a bigger tent maybe for an office setup or something like that during an event. We can just pop up 10 or 16 Zeltbahns together and we basically have that. Sure. So there's no need to pay like how much are they? $800, $1,000 for yeah, they're like very expensive. a tent we... Yeah, and we can use it like maybe once every two, three years, uh, realistically. And to be honest, the Zelpons is something everybody have, but I'm not really sure who had his squad tents and stuff. Well, that's a good question, uh, because these tents, these large tents, they do appear in wartime photos, um, but not like, they're not ubiquitous, right? They're not everywhere on all fronts, and... Um, I never, I don't think any of the veterans that I interviewed in the past told me that they ever slept in a tent like that. And, um, you know, you really kind of have to ask for whom were these large tents intended? You know, who had them and and what was their purpose? And, uh, you know, maybe there's somebody out there listening to this who's studied this for 20 years and is an expert on uh, the use of large tents. And I would love to have that person on as a guest. But, you know, I think... I go to uh, certain public display events and you see these long rows of giant yellow tents. And that is something that that is something that I think is pushing the envelope of even what is is plausible. That's that's my personal opinion. You know, some someone might have a photograph of a setting that shows exactly that. And, you know, and that's great. But certainly in with regards to like what was a typical common experience, I don't think that. Uh, an encampment made up of rows of of big yellow tents in a World War II field setting is uh, is very representative. You know, I'm I'm trying to put 
to, to phrase this in such a way that it's, I'm not trying to make an absolutist statement. I'm not saying that these tents were never used. I'm also not necessarily trying to say that these things are overused and reenacting. I'm just saying that to me, when I read accounts of soldiers or look at photographs of soldiers in the field, there are some things that come up again and again and seem representative and, and some things that are more unusual. And I, to me, the big, the big tents for, for accommodations certainly are, are not typical. Yeah, and if I were to guess, and this is just a guess, but I believe I I believe I've seen those larger tents mostly in the North African theater, and uh, so I have a, like a hunch that most of these tents were issued there. Um, one of the reasons is because in the heat in the desert, a uh, tent is far better than anything else, and in the desert. There are no towns, villages, cities, farms, etc. around. So if you're going to move an army, you will have to bring your own um, accommodations, which would be tents, which could be erected up uh, for like a forward accommodation, uh, still far behind the, uh, the front lines. But as, for example, in France or Russia or stuff like that, you can just take a farm accommodate a farm and just sleep there um if you're in a village you have many many buildings to um to play around with um this is partly why the scorched earth tactic was so widely used in in for example russia and not in uh in north africa sure yeah that's a uh i think that's totally reasonable um obviously there were there were some uses for large tents you know there were like i guess i don't know staff tents or you know you mentioned for maybe like an office setup in a tent these are things that can be seen in wartime photos um these are basically ersatz buildings in a sense where they needed to have a building to house an office or a building for a staff headquarters to do their work but no no building maybe was available for whatever reason and so they they have tents for this purpose um you know and that would possibly be on a battalion or regimental level absolutely yeah i think would be on a larger level certainly than a squad if you look at the equipment carried by a squad uh obviously there's nobody in the squad who is carrying uh cots and there's nobody in the squad who's carrying this big bulky canvas tent when we're talking about you know infantry or uh, anything like that um it must have been at some higher level. It must have been at some, you know, more larger scale force, probably. And also, obviously, this should probably go without saying, but but behind the lines, right? Like in a rear area, you might find something like that. Maybe in a uh, regimental Gefechtstand, you know, or or even a a divisional level. They might have had stuff like that for maybe in... You know, I'm kind of just speculating here, but maybe in areas of the Soviet Union where the population density was extremely low and they couldn't count on being able to use uh, villages or, or towns or whatever for this purpose. Yeah, maybe the division had to set up in a, on a farm and the farm only has so many buildings, so you need to erect a few tents as well to like have enough room for the division to work. Sure. And I don't even know necessarily what those tents looked like. I see them in photographs. 
Uh, I see them in black and white photographs. I think a lot of them were probably made out of gray canvas, um, although in a in a black and white photograph, it can be hard to tell if something is gray or, or tan. Um, you know, I know that there were tan ones that existed. Um, I see a lot of camouflage painted ones with different camouflage schemes, whether it's like a field applied, brushed on camo, or um, in the 1930s, I think there was like a standardized camouflage pattern that that was used for this stuff um there's definitely a lot of room there for historical research i think in terms of um primary sources you know there's i'm sure there's documentation that exists about these tents uh what came with the tent for whom the tents were used i mean there must be uh regulations and stuff that could be found I've never personally really looked for this stuff specifically, so uh, you know I don't know how hard or easy it might be to find that, but I'm sure that this information is out there, and it would definitely be cool if somebody would take this on as a project, you know, and really do a a really deep dive. There may be a book about this, right? Is there a book about tents of the Wehrmacht? Not that I know of, and I think this kind of information would help the reenactment scene a lot. Sure. Not necessarily by changing what we do, but more like at least having the knowledge of what we're doing, kind of. Sure. You know, if you know how things were supposed to be, um, then you can kind of take it from there and think, okay, well, what was the reality of how things really went in, in the war and in the field? And then how can I replicate this on a different scale, on a different level, you know, taking into account authenticity compromises that may need to be made for whatever reason. Um, I think that's a good approach. Yeah, I think so too. And when you're talking like forward uh, setup uh, accommodations and stuff, uh, there's something I see a lot during the, uh, when I when I look at photos from the uh, German invasion of Norway, because as soon as land was um, occupied uh, and barracks um, or bases were starting to be built, to be built and stuff, I see so many extremely shabby barracks being built. I'm surprised if the if the German soldiers spent more than like four days on building an entire base because the buildings don't have any insulation. It's basically um, like walls of thin wood with a roof and it's just like open space uh, inside. And I mean that kind of accommodation if you're doing something that isn't even permanent but more like semi-permanent maybe for the next three months you would just build that instead of uh, having a tent out for three months sure and then you can start uh building like proper barracks uh, as soon as you got your own accommodation first that's meant to like last well in many cases here in norway uh, (laughs) at least 70 years sure I have some some sets of photos that show soldiers um, on the eastern front building bunkers, and they've got tents set up, you know, big uh, Zeltbahn tents that are, that's where they're sleeping until the, the bunkers can be completed. Um, you know, could they have used bigger tents in some situations like that? You know, uh, was would it have been possible for larger tents to be brought forward for for accommodation purposes you know i'm i'm not really sure um like i say i think there's there's a lot of room for 
for research there. But, uh, you know, circling back around to what you said about how universal the Zeltbahn is, the, the Zeltbahn was something that was everywhere and everybody had it, basically. And so tents made up of these things, I think, are going to be appropriate and are going to be applicable to any situation where you need to have a tent. Um, I just think they're so versatile. Like you said, you can make you could make a huge tent if you needed a huge tent. You can make one out of Zeltbahns, uh, Zeltbahnen, right? Um, so, yeah, that's that's also our approach. Um, plus, I just think I don't know. There's something cool about it. I really like the I like the Zeltbahn. I like the the camouflage pattern. I like the the way that light filters through it, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you're in your tent, <laughs> yeah. it's cool. It's like stained glass looking on the inside. It's beautiful. No, it, it truly is. It's uh, it's a good feeling. It's one of my favorite things about reenactment is, is sleeping in those tents. Um, you know, I, w- one other thing that I really like about the Zeltbahn is that usable and, and pretty accurate high quality reproductions of these shelter quarters are widely available and have been widely available for, for 15 years or something. So there's a lot of them out there, even used ones. Um, so you don't have to use some kind of original, fragile World War II thing. You can use a replica that is functionally, visually, basically the same. And if you do tear it or, or wear holes in it, which is something that does happen. Like what, you know, the, the thing I read earlier that Leon de Grel mentioned the wear holes in the tents. This is something that will happen. And, um, if you have these, you can just repair them. You can patch them up, sew them up, and you're not changing the historical integrity of some kind of original collectible item. Uh, whereas if you're using original equipment, you might not want to add, you know, modern sewing and, and patches and so on and so forth. So um, I just think we, we should consider ourselves really lucky that reproduction Zeltbahn shelter quarters exist and that they're they're not very expensive and there's lots of them out there and they're easy to find so you know why not use those yeah there's no reason to use originals the only thing i hear often is that people bitch about the new ones being very stiff uh but um they'll they'll break in um if you look at like a very mint uh original zelpon it's very stiff too sure it's interesting i People will complain about the Repro Zeltbahn and that they are too thin or too thick or they're too stiff or not stiff enough or whatever. But if you hold an array of uh, originals in conditions ranging from mint to to used, um, if you compare early war ones and late war ones, I mean, it's just there's an unbelievable amount of difference in the originals. Um, a Zeltbahn made in the 1930s is going to be heavier and thicker and more sturdy, generally speaking, than one made in 1944. Um, at the end of the war, I have some late war original Zelts that are so flimsy and thin and that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they've taken all kinds of shortcuts with the manufacturing. They reduced the number of grommets for affixing the ropes. Uh, it's got the same camouflage pattern on both sides as opposed to the early ones, which invariably had a light side and a dark side. Um, you know, practically any reproduction from a functional standpoint is going to be a lot better than some of these uh, late war originals, to be honest. Yeah, I have. Um, I had an original one that uh, 
I mean, it was probably worn down too, but the material wasn't much thicker than a t-shirt. And then that that brings us to like the waterproof aspect of the Zeltbahn. You know, there are many people I've seen complain that their Zeltbahn was not totally waterproof. Uh, I do not believe that originals were totally waterproof at all. I think the top quality, um, you know, early and and pre-war examples when they were new, when they were when they still had all of the original, you know, waterproofing that had been a, been applied. I I think these things were treated with a chemical. Uh, I think it was called Peristol or something like that. It's a these things were treated with a waterproofing chemical that's no longer manufactured. But uh, you know, when that coating was new and when these things were new, I think the early ones probably were were pretty water resistant. But ultimately, all of this stuff is um, canvas. You know, it's not going to be as waterproof as a plastic tarp. And there are ways that you can make your Zeltbahn more waterproof. You know, there are waterproofing chemicals and sprays that you can buy. I've used these in the past. I've treated some of my Zeltbahn in many times. I used to treat them every year. Now I don't really worry about it so much. I can deal with the little bit of, you know, an occasional drip that might happen in a severe rainstorm if I'm using these things you know i'm i'm laying in there under under blankets and stuff i'm not going to get soaked to the skin usually in these situations um but yeah for people you know if i would recommend people i would recommend people do that if they want i feel if you use them as a tent they are more or less waterproof i've never really had rain drip through the zelpon like through the material um but it's like when you wear it that uh, you get like drenched yourself, really. As long as it's like tied up against a pole and stakes, then I've never had an issue with uh, water dripping through it. I've had on some, uh, using some reproductions, I've had water actually drip through after, I'm thinking about one specific, this was one time this happened. We went to an event, I think we got there on Tuesday or Wednesday, and we were there until uh, Saturday or Sunday. And it was just an absolute hell of rain, this event. It just rained and rained and rained. And the canvas did become so saturated with water um, that, you know, these were these were used tents and, you know, used shelter quarters. And they, there were some leaks uh, where you would have a, a drop that would come through every now and again. But... The thing is, is that every time I've been in a situation where it rained really, really heavily and I was in its Zeltbahn tent and I got wet, it wasn't from the occasional drip coming through the fabric or coming through tiny leaks or the holes for the buttons. It was because the uh, ground became saturated and water started flowing around on the ground and I got wet from the ground up, basically. Um, you know, there's... there's an, it's pot, In certain types of terrain with certain types of soil um you know there's sometimes there's just nothing that you're really going to be able to do to not get wet if you're sleeping outside laying on the ground um so you know that's just kind of something that that has to be taken into account i think yeah i agree um, I find, I mean, from a practical standpoint, I find the Zeltman tent to be very practical. It's not what I would take if I was going to be climbing Mount Everest. You know, it maybe isn't um, 
I don't think I would necessarily invite my uh, friends to sleep in Zeltbahn tents if we were going on sort of like a modern camping trip, and especially if it was uh, heavy rain in the forecast. Um, but in most situations, and yeah, in the rain, in in light rain or, or even steady rain, and if you're if you've got yourself situated in a place that's got good drainage and, you know, you're not going to find yourself laying in a puddle. Um, th- like you say, those tents, they are, they are water resistant and on some level almost waterproof. And, uh, you know, they work, they work, I think they work really good. I've probably, I couldn't even begin to count how many nights I've spent sleeping uh, underneath my, my Zalpon tent. And uh, <laughs> likewise, you know, I love it. And I, yeah, uh, you also have uh, I, one thing I usually do is when I'm on an outpost, um, usually on a hilltop, and there's like some strong wind or maybe some wind with some rain, I usually put up um, a zelpon and use a pole or a wooden stick or something. And the uh, zelpon rope, which is like I don't know, a meter long piece of rope with a with a loop on either side and i just prop it up against the wind so i don't have it um blowing into my face and if it's like raining i can like lean into it and be more or less dry as i'm uh, sitting on my outpost observing yeah that's great i mean there's alpine is such a versatile thing it uh you know you can set up a tent you can set up a single uh, Zeltbahn as kind of a windbreak or, you know, to protect yourself, protect one person from the weather like you described. You could set up two of them with the uh, the poles and the Zeltbahn rope and that it almost is uh, going to be enclosed enough that you could probably sleep two people underneath something like that, even in a rain shower and have them remain uh, dry and sheltered. You know, and uh, you could always scale up and you could put together as many of these things as you have and and make a tent out of it. Um, We've done 12 man tents, which is like an eight man. You know, for those of you who know what the eight Zeltbahn tent looks like, it's it's basically a long rectangle and you can just keep on making that longer, uh, adding four tents. Tent sections at a time, you know. So we've done twelve for sometimes when we have a lot of people at the event, and you could go, you could go longer than that. You could go as long as you have space for, and and Zeltbons to put it up. And uh, we've also done the sixteen Zeltbon tent, which is a giant uh, pyramid that's got a lot of space and headroom inside. Uh, it's surprisingly big inside. It's, it seems even bigger on the inside than it looks on the outside, and it looks big on the outside. Um, and of course, yeah, no, they're impressive to look at. Yeah, and it's you know it's expensive in a sense because you're going to pay. You know, you might score a great deal and be able to pay fifty dollars for a used uh, reproduction salt bond that maybe is from you know it's one of the lower lower cost imported versions or whatever, or maybe you'll pay a hundred dollars. Kind of, you could you could probably get a really nice one for a hundred dollars, and you know, sixteen of those is. Uh, Oh, well, it's sixteen hundred bucks, right? But um, I mean, it, it's reenacting, right? All of your kit costs money and is relatively expensive. And uh, certainly, the large tents that some people prefer to use, like you said earlier, those are a thousand dollars or more as well. Um, yeah, and if you buy sixteen tents, you can equip sixteen guys with each result bomb. 
you can't equip 16 guys with each big tent for the same money. Yeah, you really need a, a vehicle almost to be able to move the the big tents around. They are very heavy. And that is something that has kind of come up that people will sometimes say as a sort of a justification for having these. They'll say, well, we're a motorized unit, you know, but if you look at how many vehicles were assigned to a motorized unit and how many weapons and how many people all of those vehicles were supposed to transport when the unit was on the march you know you you you've got to ask yourself where would be the space for these for these big tents you know yeah motorized i doubt motorized units had like a vast amount of huge tents no i don't think so I think either it would just be the regular ones on like um uh, divisional level, battalion level, stuff like that. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying nobody should ever use a big tent, but, you know, you probably, uh, those of you listening to this probably have gotten the sense that I'm not like a, personally, I'm not a huge fan of the the big uh, yellow tent form of uh, World War II reenacting in general. Yeah, same. It feels more like going on themed camping, basically. I think, in my opinion, you know, I understand there are units out there that basically do primarily or maybe even exclusively public display events. And so they want to have a space that they can use for sleeping and for storage. And maybe that also spectators can go inside if they're doing a public display and the weather isn't great. Uh, you know, they can set up a, a sort of an inside display. I mean, I get that stuff, you know, if that's their, um, if that's the desired result or whatever that I guess would make sense. But um, certainly for tactical stuff, for immersion type events, I think that uh, personally, I think Zalpon tents are the way to go if you need a tent. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It comes back to that they are universal. Everybody had them, and you can make big tents, and you can make small tents. Have you ever used a waterproofing spray or a waterproofing treatment on yours? I honestly haven't. I've done it, and I don't know if I would do it again. The, the waterproofing chemical is... Uh, the spray cans aren't cheap. Um, they are made for people to waterproof usually they're generally intended for like waterproofing your backpack or whatever so you maybe need a lot of cans to do you know if you have multiple zelpons to do it can get expensive and there's there's brush on treatments as well uh water seal products that people will use i think if uh if i knew that i was going to be doing an event that was a week long and it was in a, in a season, in a place that was typically very rainy, I might, before the event, uh, waterproof my stuff. I'm not saying I would never do it. Uh, I think it probably does add to the water resistance and make it a little more, can make it a little more dry in there. But, I mean, these things, like I say, these things are reasonably dry uh, right out of the box or even in used condition. And um, if if the water is going to be coming up from the ground, it doesn't matter how how waterproof your <laughs> tent is if you don't have a floor. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those events you can't really describe it. You sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually in Normandy. 
I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage. But I do think that there is room to grow. A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a really nice refresh to get back out there. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. So I guess that's uh, that's about all the time we've got. Uh, before we wrap up the episode, I do want to take a moment to thank all of the people that support us uh, via Patreon. Without you guys, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. So um, thank you very much for your support. Absolutely. That is what keeps us going, what keeps the podcast up online and stuff like that. It pays the bills. Yeah, right. It pays the bills. And then just as a sort of a teaser... Well, the podcast bills. We are doing a giveaway. We're going to be doing a giveaway soon, and I'll be announcing details about that uh, once we figure it out. But uh, we'll be doing another like promotional giveaway thing, so keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Really excited for it. And anybody who wants to get in touch with us can, uh, can message us through the Reenactors Corner on Facebook and also uh, Instagram at the reenactors corner yeah links are in the show notes yeah let us know if you've got any uh if you've got any ideas for show episodes i always like getting those or just any feedback on this episode or any episode would be really appreciated um so having said all that thanks guys for listening and to you lasa and to everybody else out there uh have a great day have a great week i'll see you in the field i'll see you in the field chris Before we go, you may want to check out Fela Kopf over at german-worldwar2.com, that is german-ww2.com, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.